Welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. I'm Mike, one of the pastors here at Trinity Life Church. If you're new with us today, you got a connection card in your program. And like Adam said earlier, you can just fill that out and put it in your offering bag as it goes by uh, later. So we're finishing our 101 series that we've been going through this summer. We're finishing it today. And we're talking about society. We've been talking about a whole bunch of good topics. Remember, this is, we wanted to get to back to the fundamentals of the faith. So we talked about kingdom, faith, God, Bible, Jesus, cross, Holy Spirit, prayer, church, and then today's society. And all this has been kind of leading up to society. Because the, the tagline you can see was just how basic truth engages society. So we've been kind of like priming you guys with truth, like Adam said, giving you tools to take that truth into your workplace, to your families, into your communities. And then now we're going to talk about what it actually looks like for us to engage society. What does it look like for the church to be in society? And this is a classic passage for it, uh, Jeremiah 29, that we're going to use this morning to talk about this. And then next week, uh, it's really exciting, next week we'll celebrate four years as a church. Um, and we'll, yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> we're, we're still here, we're still learning words, we're still trying to figure out life. Um, and uh, so about four years, we're going to celebrate that with, with um, covenant membership and just a renewal of that and a celebration of what that means in the life of our church. So uh, next week should be really special as we head into the fall. We have tons of stuff happening in the fall. One of those things is we'll go back into 1 Corinthians. So we've been preaching through 1 Corinthians this, this year, and we took a summer hiatus from it. And then we'll come back into 1 Corinthians chapter 10 next week, and we're going to be talking about unity. And then we'll finish 1 Corinthians out throughout the rest of the year. So that's really exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Those of you guys who have been waiting to get back into 1 Corinthians, that'll start next week. But <clears throat> let's talk about society today. So I spent <clears throat> some of my childhood, about four years of it, in, growing up in Indonesia. And, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, and it was great. Uh, I still don't know why we were there. It was my dad's job, but I still don't know what he did when we were there. Uh, my dad, uh, I don't know what he does. So, but for those years, we lived, in, we lived in Indonesia. And like I said, and so I was in, in grade school at this time. And like I said, it was pretty awesome. I mean, it's an island nation, all those things. Uh, but we had, we had this huge house. We had, and with the house was like, pools and tennis courts and uh, playgrounds, and we went to this, this private school, and it was, it was great. It was top-notch education, and, and, uh, and it was just, they had every extracurricular program you could want for, for grade school at this, at this school. Um, we had, uh, we, we basically, my dad's job was, was really good, so our money went a long ways. We, we lived, 
We lived like kings there. And we had like, we had a driver, we had nice cars, we had a driver to drive us from one place to another place, all these things. Now, it sounds all great. And it was. Now, at this time, my family, we weren't believers. Uh, no one in my family was a believer at this time. Uh, we were just living life. And, and when I look back on it now, I think, oh, that, those are good times in my life. But something was off. And the thing that was off was that although we lived in Indonesia, we didn't actually live with Indonesians. You catch that? We lived in that country, but the house we lived in was in a walled compound with a whole bunch of other expats, with everyone else who was like us, who had left their country, they were foreigners, they, they had come to live in Indonesia, uh, and we all lived in this walled, remember I said walled, compound, where only we could get in. So it was all the people like us lived in this one area. The school I went to, although it was good education, you know, all the, all the perks, it was only a school for expats. It was only a school that expats could afford to go to. And in all my time in Indonesia, those four years, I only remember engaging with one Indonesian, my driver. <laughs> that would drive us to and from school and those things. And then, of course, you know, aside from like going to the store and things like that. But we didn't have... To my recollection, we didn't have Indonesian friends. We, we lived in this city, but we, didn't, we probably didn't do Indonesian things. Uh, we, didn't, we weren't part of the city. We weren't part of the culture. We were over here in our little walled compound. We're over here in the school in our little bubble. Now, that's the picture of the church in many ways. And that may be the picture of your faith in many ways. You're living your faith in this walled compound. And for you, that may be Sunday morning. But then during the week, it's something else. You're, the church is, is in, in our day, is a lot of times we're, we're living here. And we want to, and it's with good intentions, we want to protect our culture. We want to protect our identity. We want to stay safe. We want to stay secure. We want to have nice things. We want to be good. But the problem is, we're divorced from the rest of the world. And what we've done in, in segregating ourselves over here is we've created not, we haven't preserved Christian culture, we've created a subset of the worldly culture. Because here in this walled compound, we're still concerned about the same things the world is concerned about. Keeping ourselves safe, raising our kids well, staying in this walled compound, having nice things, having uh, amenities, all these things. And all we've done is we've separated ourselves from the world and we've walled ourselves in and we've done our own little thing here. Now, the church, though, is not supposed to be like that. That actually isn't the church. If that's who we are, that's not who Jesus came to die for. That's not the bride of Christ. That's not the body of Christ. Because if we were the bride of Christ, if we were the body of Christ, we wouldn't act like that. And here's the bottom line truth for today, as we think about society, is that the church is called to engage society, not escape society. The church is called to engage society, not, not escape it. Okay? So let's look at this passage. 
This is Jeremiah, um, one, of the, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. And this letter, he's, he's reading a letter from God. And, the God sa- and, and God says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty is, is what that means, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's what's going on. So exile has happened because the people of Israel, <clears throat> they were supposed to be something. They were supposed to be something awesome. They were supposed to be something special. Not because of anything they did or not because of who they are, because the Bible also says that they're the fewest of all peoples. And God chose them because of that, not because they're the greatest and they're the most accomplished, but because they were the least, because they're the fewest, because God wanted to make his glory and his power known. So he chooses his people for a purpose, for a mission. And that mission is to make him known to the world. It's to make God known to the rest of the world through this one people that is going to look like God. Because remember, all of us used to look like God. I don't mean physically, because uh, God's invisible. But God created us in his image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, you and me were created in the image of God. Well, Genesis 3 happened. Sin, the fall, uh, disobedience happens. And that image is distorted. That image is corrupted. And so the story of the scriptures is very much one of us and God and God trying to make us look like him again. He's trying to restore that image. And he chooses a people in order to do that. And if you wonder why the Old Testament has all these laws and has all these principles and regulations and instruction and all this, it's because that image has been so corrupted that God needs to, God is giving them these things to restore it in them, to show them how to be. Okay? Now the problem is they can't do all those things. Okay? And that's where Jesus comes in. We'll get to him later. Uh, But He's crafting a people and a nation for this purpose. And Deuteronomy 4 says that when they go into the land, the promised land that he gives them, when they go into it, the nations are going to look at them and say, wow, we've never seen a people with a God who is so near to them, who is so close to them, and we've we've never known God like this before. And they're going to reveal God to the world. So that's, that's the thing. And Moses says if we can do that in Deuteronomy 4, God's going to bless Good things are going to happen in the world. But if we don't, then exile is going to come. We're going to, he says we're going to get vomited, thrown out of the land. Okay? So this is what's happening here in Jeremiah. The people, rather than walking forward in, in willingness and obedience and blessing and choosing life, as Moses says, they actually chose death. Okay, they were deceived. They followed the lie. And they chose death and they disobeyed, they sinned, they forsook the covenant that God had made with them. And now the consequence is they, they're removed from the land, is exile. Now that sounds, that, that sounds pretty bad, but if we just stop there, that's pretty superficial religious stuff. You sin, you disobey, you get punished, or there's a consequence, Right? What does it even matter that they disobeyed? Why is it even a big deal that they forsook the covenant? Does that even matter? 
does it even matter that they they chose death over life? Does it even matter that they that they chose to not obey God rather than obey God? Well, it doesn't matter unless God is who He says He is. It doesn't matter unless God actually has a relationship with these people. And so this whole thing isn't based on religion. It isn't, oh, Israel forsook their religion and now these are the consequences. It's they forsook this relationship. God gave them everything. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt and bondage and he set them up and he said, you're going to be the light to the world. You're going to have land. You're going to have blessing. The Messiah is going to come through you and you're going to tell the world all about me. And they said, no, actually, we're going to take everything you've given us and we're going to use it for our, our own pleasures, our own desires. And we're going to go this way. And so what happens here is, is not that they had uh, religious errors happening. They forsook their father, their relationship with the God who, who, who uh, saved them and, and put them in here and gave them all this blessing. So now Jeremiah comes on the scene and, and, uh, and he's saying a certain prophecy for them. And they're, they're being removed from the land. And you see here that the people that get removed from the land uh, are in verses 1 through 3, which we didn't read because it's a bunch of names. But I'm going to note to you right now. Um, we see here that there's a certain group of people that gets moved out of the land, that gets exiled. Not all of them do. So Babylon comes in. And, and they're kind of the, uh, they're, they're the conquering nation. And they come into Jerusalem and Judah and the people of Israel and they conquer it. Now, a lot of the people stay there and they're in captivity. But a certain group of people gets taken from Jerusalem and has to go to Babylon. And these are the people. So it says the surviving elders, so that's like the governing body, right? right? The, the, the wise of the day. The surviving elders are taken, the priests, the religious leaders, the prophets, uh, the, the mouthpiece of God, uh, go down, the king, queen mother, eunuchs, officials. So we see here a lot of the influential people, the craftsmen. Why do you think the craftsmen are, are mentioned here with kings and officials and, and uh, relig religious leaders, metal workers? Like in our day, we're like, why, why would those people be, be mentioned? Well, because they're the artists. They're the cultural influencers. That's this group right here. The builders, the artists, the architects, the cultural influencers and the officials, the, the leaders, the religious ones, the, the, gover the government ones. These are the ones who are influencing and shaping culture. Now, why would Babylon say, we want all of them in Babylon? Well, it's because... When Judah, when the nation came in to, when Babylon came in to, to conquer Judah, Jeremiah spoke this prophecy over them. He said, they're coming because of, because of us, because we did something wrong. We forsook God, and God is using Babylon now, Jeremiah was saying, to, as our consequence. And he wants us, Jeremiah said, God wants us to willingly submit to that. And they said, no way we're willingly submitting to that. So they fought, and they're in a war, and, and they're fighting for their lives, and they're fighting to not be in captivity, to not be in exile.
Okay? So now Babylon knows if we take the leaders, we bring them to Babylon, and we immerse them into Babylonian culture within, who, who knows, a few years, generation, the leaders, the leaders will begin to shape the rest of the people of Israel. And they'll begin to they'll win the war. They'll win that battle. They'll win the war because now they have shaped the cultural influencers who will now shape the people of Israel. See, they left the followers in Jerusalem. They brought the leaders and the cultural influencers to Babylon. What's funny about this is that God is about to use their strategy against them. Okay, so Babylon has a strategy to take over the nation of Israel. Not just make them slaves, but to make them Babylonians. Does that make sense? And God is saying, no, I'm using, I'm using you to bring Israel into you to make you my people. That's what's about to happen here. So the Lord of hosts says this in verse 4, and it says that, and God says, I have sent them into exile. Well, in verse 1, it says that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, had sent them into exile. But in 4 and verse 7, God says, no, I'm the one who did that. In 5, he says, and this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like for you to begin to engage culture. For you as the people of Israel, as a people of God, to begin to engage in Babylon. He says, build houses, in verse 5, and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Build houses and, and live in them. He's, he's, he's telling them, one, um, make your dwelling place there. But not just your dwelling place. Like, this is where you're staying. This is, this is your livelihood. And then he goes into plant gardens. Be, be a contributor to the economy. Cultivate the land. And eat their produce. Take part in, take part in the city. Verse 6 Basically, give and take in marriage. Take wives, give wives, take sons, give sons in marriage. That they may, and, and what's significant there is that this is the social fabric of our society, right? It's relationships. And marriage is the most intimate human relationship. It's the most intense human relationship. And if you're married, you, you know that. <laughs> it's the most intense human relationship. And so if this is happening, if this is happening, if they're giving their sons and daughters in marriage, then all the other relationships are, are probably happening as well. This is kind of like a, a top-down thing. So we know that, that the other ones are happening too. And he says, in order that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. Does that remind you of anything in the scriptures? I heard someone say Genesis. This is Genesis 1. This is the cultural mandate that God gave us right at the beginning. He says you're created in male and female in the image of God. And then he says in Genesis 1 verse 28 that you're to bear, that uh, you're to be fruitful and multiply. You're to increase in this world. You're to create culture in this world. You're to make disciples. You're to spread out because he says you're to subdue the land and you're going to have dominion or authority over it. And this is how we exercise and how we live out the image of God in us. 
You know, theologians for centuries have, been, have, have said, you know, what is the image of God? And everyone's gone back and forth. You, you may have asked that. What does it mean that the image of God is in me? Does it mean that I look like God physically? Does it mean that I look like God in my characteristics? What does it mean? Well, initially, the first and foremost, those passages are linked with having dominion and creating culture and having authority over this world. And if that's the image of God in us, and that's how we exercise it, how many of you are actually living out the image of God? How many of you actually look like God if that's the case? See, a lot of times we focus on, on other things. Um, you know, and, and these are all good things, the way we love and, and the way we um, uh, have patience or, or uh, how we share the gospel, those, those things. But, f- but in Genesis, it's linked with having authority and dominion over the world. Instead, the church, instead of recognizing that, the church has said, let's stay over here in our walled compound and, and just be safe and secure. Instead of saying, we need to engage society. The world was meant for us. Okay? And what's happened with the church is we have, we have tried to escape society. We've fled the city. We've fled... We've, we're not doing any of these things. We're not building. We're not planting. We're not, we're not in relationship. None of these things. And God is saying to the people of Israel that they need to do these things. They need to build homes. He's saying, this is your home. This is where you're supposed to be. Build and live in it. And he says, don't just scatter seed. Don't just plant gardens, but actually eat of it too. Don't just scatter it and then leave. You were meant to be here for my purposes to show people my glory. And he says, your relationships are for that. And you're to increase, not decrease. And for the church in our country, in our city, we're not increasing we're decreasing. You can look at the stats over the past 10 years. We're decreasing because we're not engaging society. And he says, this is how you do it. Actually, before I get there, um, you know, a lot of people always ask Missy Ness. We've, we've, we've lived in Toronto almost five years and people always ask us, do you feel like it's home yet? And, or they say, do you, do you like it here? Um, or do you see yourself staying here? And we get those questions all the time. Uh, in our city, five years is actually an eternity, right? <laughs> A lot of you guys, uh, people in our city is so transient. Uh, so two things on that. One, we decided when we moved here that this was home. Now, we decided in our family, we were going to call this home. We weren't going to refer to where we moved from as home. So people say sometimes, are you going back home? And I always want to correct them and say, oh, well, this is home. But I feel like I'd be a jerk if I, if I said that. Uh, because we don't consider North Carolina home. Now, Missy was born and raised in North Carolina. I moved around a lot growing up. So nowhere was really home for me. Um, I, but for Missy... She was born and raised in one city. 
And even for her, this is home. Because we decided together we were going to call this home. This is going to be our home. And we were going to be here. We were going to build a house. And we didn't literally. But we were going to build a house and live in it. We were going to scatter seed, grow it, water it, and eat of it. We were going to be in relationships for the long term. We were going to do all those things because we said, God has called us here. And people always ask me if, if we like it here. And I never say this, but I want to say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we like it here. Now we love it here. We love Toronto. But we know that God has placed us here. We know God has put us here. So it doesn't matter if we like it. We just need to be obedient and willing. And that's what he's telling the people right now. He's like, I know you don't like it. You don't have to like it. Israel was just slaughtered and plundered and pillaged and their homes were destroyed and families were torn apart. And now God has them in Babylon and he says, you're supposed to live here. All that was for this, so that you will plant here, you will live here, you'll be in a relationship here, and you'll do it for my glory. And he says, this is how you do it. In the next verse, verse 7, he says, seek the welfare. Now that word, welfare, we often think it means like prosper, and, and it does uh, in a sense. But that word is literally shalom in Hebrew. It's peace, it's wholeness, it's completeness. So when he says, seek the welfare of your city, he says, you are bringing wholeness and completeness to something that is broken. And to something that can only be restored by the people of God, carrying the light of God, doing the mission of God in our city. So he says, seek the welfare. Remember, that's hard. That's hard for Israel after what just happened to them. That, that may be hard for you because you're, no one at work likes the fact that you're a Christian, because you feel oppressed here, because everyone else stands against something, uh, everyone else stands against what we stand for, or, or you feel persecuted in, in some ways, um, or, you have, or people have slandered you, or, or people hate you, uh, but he says... Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Seek their welfare by doing this. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. Now, that seems like a pretty easy request. Like praying for a city, praying for those who persecute you, praying for those who, who hate you, praying for those who want to harm you. Uh, but when we think about prayer, one, it's not, an, not a simple request. But when we think about prayer... Prayer, I, I talked about marriage as the most intense, intimate relationship on a human, on a human level. Prayer is, I, I believe that prayer is the most intense, intimate relationship on a spiritual human level. You're never, you're never as close to someone in your life until you bring them, you're close to, the closest you'll ever be to somebody in your life is when you bring them to the throne of the Father. Is when you lift them up to the throne of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness, of love. Because there's something spiritual that happens there. And he says that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to pray the Lord on, on our city's behalf, on, on our enemy's behalf. We're supposed to pray for them that they would find wholeness and completeness for in their shalom, 
you'll find your shalom. He says when, when they find completeness and wholeness and peace, then you'll find it. That's, that's a radical statement there. That in our city, when it's complete, then we, will, then we will find that same peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts in verse 8, the God of Israel, and here's the problem. We're deceived. Do not let your prophets, your, your, your diviners who are among you, deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now that, that verse seems, unless you know the context, you're, you're like, what is he, what's he saying? Because he says, don't listen to the prophets. There's two groups of prophets in Jeremiah that are going on. Well, not two groups. There's Jeremiah, and then there's the other ones. And Jeremiah is, is the mouthpiece of God, and he's saying, we're going to be in Babylon for a while, guys. We're going to be here for a while. We're going to be doing this for 70 years. We'll see in the next verse. The other prophets are saying, there's one in particular in, in chapter 28. His name is Hananiah. He says, hey, guys, in two years, we're going to be out of here. He's like, don't worry about it. Like, it's not that big a deal. Two years. We just have to suck it up. Two years. God's going to return uh, everything to us. He's going to restore everything for us. And, and you, don't have to, you don't have to plant house, or you don't have to build houses and live in them. You don't have to plant and eat of it. Like, we're just going to be here, and then we'll be gone, and God's going to save us. Now, that sounds like a great message, right? Even Jeremiah's like, hey, he says, Amen. In chapter 28, he says, I hope that happens. Like, that would be awesome. I mean, what an awesome message, right? If, if a prophet came in and, and someone, maybe one of you guys stand up and you're like, hey, guys, guess what? In two years, God's going to save everybody in Toronto. We'd all say, yeah, amen. Like, we hope that's going to happen. Um, that's, that'd be really awesome. Jeremiah is saying, it's actually going to be a little harder than that, guys, because God has a different plan for us. God has a different plan for the world. God has a different plan for the nations. And he's going to do something different. And God comes to Jeremiah later, and he says, hey, what he said is wrong. This is what's right. And he needs to stop talking, uh, because if he doesn't, something's going to happen. And what happens is Hananiah doesn't stop talking. And God literally says, I will remove you from the face of the earth for being a false prophet for giving false hope, for giving false security, for giving uh, lies and deceit. And so here, verse 8 says, don't listen to them. Now, for us in our city, the church is... We have a hard time discerning what are lies and deceit and what are truth sometimes. Sometimes the church thinks if we look like our city, if we, if we, if we do things that are city-likes, that, that they look like, then we're going to be accepted more. That's not necessarily true. The church, actually it's not true. The church needs to look different. We need to look like a unique people. So we don't want to look like our city. That's a lie. That's deceit. That's, that's, that's a falsehood. Um, and God says, stop listening to them. When you engage society, it has to be done in a certain way. And in verse 10, he says, when 70 years are completed, I will visit you. 
and I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I, in Hebrew, there's two eyes there actually in verse 11. He says, for I, I know. It's, it's very emphatic. He says, for I, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, shalom, not for evil. You know, sometimes we think because it's hard that God is doing evil to us. Sometimes we think because it's difficult that that God is not good anymore. And he clarifies that here and he says, the plans I have for you are for your welfare. They're not for evil. And they're to give you a future and a hope. Now, this is one of the passages in, in Scripture that gets kick, ripped, kicking, screaming out of its context. Because a lot of times we take this and we say, for me individually, for my own individual life, God has his will and he has a plan for me and he has a future for me and he has a hope for me and that means A, B, C. Job, relationship, success. And that's a severe misinterpretation of this passage. Because he's about to tell us what that future and hope looks like. And it doesn't look like job, family, things. It looks totally different from that. He says, but it's your future. It's your hope. And I'm going to give it to you. And he says, but before that, in verse 12, there's three things that I want you to do. One, he says, you will call upon me. You'll proclaim my name. You'll live for me. You'll be my people. You'll proclaim that you are, that I'm your God and you are my people. And then he says, and come to pray to me. You will intercede and intervene on behalf of your city. That's how you'll engage. You'll pray, you'll intercede, you'll intervene. And I will hear you, he says. And then he says in verse 13, you will seek me. He says, you'll desire me. You need to desire me. You need to pursue me. You need to look for me. See, our problem is we desire something else. We're looking for something else. We're pursuing something else in the place of God. And God's not hiding. Sometimes when we see that, we're like, oh, we're, we're playing hide and seek with God. He's not hiding from us. He's just saying, you're not looking. You don't have the eyes to see. You're blinded by the lies and the deceit. And he says, you need to open your eyes and look around you, and you will find me, he says. If you desire me, you will find me when you seek me, desire me, pursue me with all of your heart, with all of who you are. That's what the heart means in the Old Testament. It's everything. It's us. It's your will, your intellect, your emotions, your volition. Everything about you, when you seek God with all of that, he says, you will find me. And in verse 14, he says it again. I will be found by you. 
I will restore your fortunes. This is the future and the hope. I'll gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you and where God has carried them there. This isn't just Old Testament. This is New Testament language. We're sojourners. We're exiles. We're travelers. We're, we're the diaspora in this world. And he says, eventually I'm going to bring you all back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So where's God bringing us back to? Where's God bringing his church back to? Where's God bringing the people of Israel back to, the people of God, which is who we are? Where is he bringing us back to? If that's our future and our hope, what is it? What does it look like? The entire scriptures are a story of God restoring a broken relationship and bringing us back through his son Jesus to rest, to his presence, to peace, to shalom, to wholeness, to completeness, back to the promised land, back to the Garden of Eden, where that relationship was unadulterated, where that relationship was pure and holy and whole. And God is saying, as the church, as we are out in society, our future eventually is him bringing us back. And so for us as a church, there's two homes here. Because he says to them, as exiles, you are to engage society in Babylon and make it your home. But he also says this isn't your ultimate home. This isn't the ultimate place for you. So, yes, you're us, for us in Toronto, we're citizens of this city. We're Torontonians. We live here. But our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And so as we engage society, we don't blindly accept culture. We don't blindly do what the Babylonians do. We don't blindly do what our city does. But we also don't wall ourselves in so that our city has no concept of who we are. The main imagery in the scriptures for how we engage society is salt and light. We're only those things because Jesus is those things, because he's, he's given us those things. We're salt because we preserve God's culture. God's culture, culture is good, guys. If you're a Christian today and you think culture is evil and you live in this walled compound, like culture is good. God created culture. He created us to create culture. Our worldly culture is not so good because we have neglected our responsibility to create culture. But culture isn't inherently evil. It's inherently good. We get to create that. We get to use our city and the power of our city to disseminate that from an urban center, from the urban center in Canada. We get to do that together. The church gets to do that. And that's how we engage society. Our problem is we're on one of these ends. We've walled ourselves in. 
or we have just blindly accepted culture. But remember, we're to engage, not escape, and that we are exiles, not examples of the society. And so as we live as exiles, pointing to Jesus, we're to pray for a city, pray for its welfare, and we're to restore the relationship to the Lord, to our Father. And we're to bring other people with us. And that's the beauty of the mission of God. Everyone else here is in exile. They just don't know it. We get to bring them with us and show them where their citizenship lies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the faithfulness of Jeremiah. Thank you for a prophet that, that stood against everybody else who said, you're wrong, God doesn't want that for us. Thank you for someone who stood against all of that, even, even while being persecuted. Thank you for someone who didn't care what he looked like, and he knew he needed to look different in order to show people who you are. And so he literally wore a yoke around his neck to show the people that that was a picture of what they were. God, give us that willingness. Give us that level of obedience to be your people. To be a people who who just care about you, Jesus. That our hearts will truly only sing your name. Thank you, Jesus, for also being obedient in that regard. And we celebrate you now with communion. And we remember you and we push you forward and we declare your glory now. I pray all this in your name. Amen. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.